I saw a woman on Facebook who has a very large parenting community post about her anxious daughter and wanting to know with certainty everything that was going to happen to her that day. And in this very charming and loving post, this mom talks about, I solved her anxiety by mapping out a very detailed calendar where she could see everything to expect. And as I read it, I, of course, said, oh, no, that's not going to help. That's going <laughs> to that's gonna bite you in the bottom. You did your Mr. Bill impression. Oh, <laughs> no. I realize you must observe so much bad advice about anxiety and how to manage it. Yes, I do. Welcome to Fluster Clucks, where we talk worry and other big feelings with Lynn Lyons. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. Hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I will help you find your way. Remember when we were pregnant, right? All the bad advice that you get when you're pregnant. Remember, you know, if you're buying a house, all the bad advice you get. If you're looking for a car, all the bad advice you get. It's really just because anxiety is so common and so many people are dealing with it all the time and people come from their own personal experience. And the other reason that there's so much bad advice is because the goal is to make it go away. And so whatever you can do for yourself or whatever a parent can do for their child or whatever a teacher can do for their student that makes the anxiety go away in the moment, that feels like a success, right? Oh my gosh, I made it go away. I think it's very interesting for us to talk in this episode about all the ways people try and make anxiety go away that doesn't work. What you call it? Doing, doing the, disorder. the disorder. Yep. Doing the disorder. All the things that you do that actually work in the short term, but are so endemic of the patterns of anxiety, right? Because anxiety wants avoidance. Anxiety wants certainty. Anxiety wants to make sure that everything goes as planned. For people to claim to be an anxiety expert, that's a pretty loaded term. And it's there aren't that many people who truly treat anxiety because what I gather, I read all of our listener questions that we choose for the show. And you will see a common theme that people say, you know, your books were the first thing that sort of made sense and has been helping our family after trying all of these other things. Oh, it, it makes me somewhat sad and discouraged for families knowing that they have to wade through a lot of bad advice. So can we talk about why do we have so much bad advice about anxiety? It's sort of this interesting paradox, right? Because people think that it's easy to treat. And in some ways, it is easy to treat if you know what you're doing. But I think probably it's easy to treat incorrectly. Because it's so compelling. It's so attractive to do the mistakes that actually make the disorder worse because they make intuitive sense and because they feel good. So when people say, I treat anxiety, I'm surprised when clinicians tell me, because I do a lot of training of clinicians, I'm surprised when they tell me, you're talking about an anxiety in a way I haven't heard before. 
or you're framing this up in a way that is different than what I was taught when I was in graduate school or what I learned about. That's surprising to me because I feel like I'm talking about anxiety in such a common sense way because in my brain, I'm always thinking we know what anxiety wants. We know the patterns that make it stronger. So let's not do the things that make it stronger. I always think in analogies and I always think in metaphors. I talk a lot about, you know, anxiety is a cult leader. And if you follow the rules, you get along in the short term, but it's not going to go well and they're going to get, it's going to get more and more powerful. Or I talk about anxiety as the little begging dog and you keep feeding it the treats because it stops it from begging. But then when you try and pull the treats away, the, the begging dog gets angry. I just feel like it's, it's very rational. The treatment of anxiety can be very rational when we just keep in mind that doing what the anxiety wants in order to feel better is like giving the drug addict the drug that makes it feel better. And we've got to interrupt that pattern. I hear all the time, all the time, that families are told that schools are putting in policies that, as I said, even clinicians are doing the things that make the disorder stronger, why do they do it? Because it works in the short term and because it immediately makes something somebody feel better if they're able to get away from those uncomfortable feelings. That reminds me of the analogy when my kids were young. If you had a babysitter with your kids and your kids were being obnoxious, wanting a treat, you as a parent would say, no, we're not going to have that. We're going to wait and have a healthy dinner. But the babysitter's like, here and be quiet. And I'm going to placate you in this short term. Right. And so it's that fix. We encountered another article recently. There was a post written on a very popular parenting blog that again, did the disorder. It was talking about if you have an anxious child who is uncertain about going back to school or going to summer camp, show them every bit of information that you can. Mm -hmm. Any of our regular listeners sort of immediately know why that's not the thing. But if someone is new to listening, they might not understand why, in fact, you don't do the disorder. So maybe you should explain a little bit about what that means. We're hearing a lot about re-entry to school and all that kind of stuff. But if you're sending your kid to school, you're sending your child to camp, it's important that they know as much as they possibly can, give them all the details, take pictures, I mean, you know, go for a visit, do everything you can to make sure that nothing is uncertain. The reason we don't want to do that is because life is uncertain. And no matter how much preparation you do, you're not going to be able to cover all the bases. You're not going to be able to give your worried child all the information. And what you've done then is you've given them the expectation that in order to move forward in anything, I have to have all the information first. Is it helpful to have some of the information? Sure. I always say to kids, when I'm traveling, I just don't show up at the airport and hope that there's a flight for me on the plane where I'm going. When I'm doing a workshop, I just don't show up and hope that everybody else knew where to go. So we want to do preparation, of course. But when you do the disorder, you're saying to the anxiety, look, I know that in order for us to move forward, we have to have all the information. My child wants all the details or I want all the details. So we're going to do that because then what happens is that they step into the situation and something is different or something unexpected happens or you have to make an adjustment or you have to adapt in some way and they have no idea how to manage that uncertainty. 
So tolerating uncertainty and managing unexpected events is a skill. Right. It's like a muscle that needs training. So every time you tell your child, here's more information instead of, well, let's just see what happens. Yes. This is what we know about the situation, but we we don't know exactly what's going to happen. This is why you and I have talked about the wonderful benefits of travel because unexpected things happen and you need to figure things out along the way. And there are extreme examples where families get so locked into this idea that in order to do something, we have to know everything. Like a a family that I uh, talked to several years ago, where they went to the same restaurant for 10 years, they would only go to one restaurant because the child needed to know exactly what was going to happen at the restaurant. And it was a chain restaurant. So the food tasted the same and the waitresses were dressed the same and the decor was the same. And so the reason we don't want to put anxiety's demand for certainty in charge of our children and in charge of ourselves is because you are trying to serve a master that will never be satisfied. And you're not letting your child develop the skill, working that muscle, like you say, of managing what do you do? How do you problem solve? How do you handle when things don't go the way that you expect them to go? When the pandemic began and clearly everyone was having a very anxious response, I remember just all these headlines about anxiety for our kids, anxiety for ourselves, and all of these people speaking on that topic. And some of the advice was a little silly in terms of, uh, well, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Take a bubble bath. Breathe deeply. Yeah. So you see a lot of really bad advice that is recycled and regurgitated. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you see that just drive you crazy? The three pieces of advice I see that drive me crazy. Well, first, like I just said, the one where it's really important to give your child all the information, right? So when you're stepping into a new situation and sometimes it gets crazy, like just you you have to have them know everything that's going to happen and you want to give as many details as possible and you want to go over the schedule and you want to write it down and you want to give them a piece of paper to put in their pocket and you want to have a whiteboard. It's just this absolute inundation of certainty. So I see that a lot. I've been seeing that all the time, even before the pandemic. And this is one of the things I work on with schools a lot, because they're very much about warnings and scaffolding and making sure that they know. So that's the one thing I see all the time. (laughs) The other thing I see all the time is this idea that we need to spend a lot of time getting to the root cause of a child's worry. And so the advice is that you really need to talk to your child to help them understand why they're worried about something, or you need to ask them what it is that makes them worried and find out the reason. Now, not only is oftentimes that really not relevant, because if you are a worrier, you will worry about anything that's uncertain. So there's not often this answer like, oh my gosh, it's because of this, right? So this idea that we need to get to the root cause, that's a piece of advice I see all the time that really is not helpful all the time. And what's implied by that piece of advice, you have to get to the root cause, is that what you once you find the root cause, then we just remove that thing and now we won't have worry anymore. And then it comes back to that idea of, well, we just have to get rid of the thing that makes you worry and then all the problems will be gone. And so when kids are worriers, when kids are anxious about things, it doesn't really matter to me, truly. And I know this is hard for people to understand sometimes, but it doesn't matter to me what you're worried about if you're a worrier because it's going to jump around anyway. 
I'm much more interested in the process of worry. So there are going to be listeners here who say, well, that's not true. My child's afraid of dogs because there was a very scary dog that nearly bit my child. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's anxious about dogs. And there's no other reason that he's anxious about dogs. And it's perfectly logical that he's anxious about dogs. And that child might only be six or seven, but you've got news for that family that, in fact... (laughs) It's going to change to something else later. Yeah, I hate to break it to you. Well, and and I'll I'll give you a good example of this, right? And let me just say this. I certainly have had kids that have experienced some sort of specific trauma and their anxiety or their fear, see, there's a difference, is that their fear is well earned because they did get bit in the face by a dog or they did fall off their bike and knock their two front teeth out. And now they're hesitant to get back on their bike, right? So we can make that connection. When I'm talking about worry, remember that that worry is a narrative and it's often created in the absence of some specific event. Let me tell you this story. A mom was talking to me and I, it was very same, just, just as you're saying, Robin, I said, look, the content doesn't really matter to me. Sometimes we can find a connection and sometimes we can't, but it really has so much to do when kids go through anything. It has so much to do with how we as parents help them manage that event and help them move through it. She said, well, my child is afraid of dogs and I know it was because she was traumatized by our neighbor's dog. And I felt bad. I said, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. What what happened? She said, well, we were out playing in the yard and this dog ran over and just started jumping up at my child and just licking her on the legs and licking her on the hands. And I had to try not to smile. I said, so the trauma was, and I said, the dog is jumping up and licking your little daughter on the legs. We're not talking about a Rottweiler here. It was a little corgi. <laughs> It was a little girl. It was a little schnoodle. I don't know what it was. But I'm sure the little girl was frightened by it, right? The little dog. But what I'm saying in this, and I think what you're getting at as well, is that children who are worriers, right? Temperamentally, they worry about things. They react to things. So what I'm saying is that there are little kids that are worriers, right? Templ- temperamentally, they're a little, a little more hesitant. The world comes at them a little more loudly. Parents have to be aware of their reaction in those situations. When we talk about worry and anxiety, and the goal is to make sure that nothing makes my child feel uncomfortable, and if it does make them feel uncomfortable, then we put it into the context of they had a trauma that made them worried, we're going down the wrong path. Do kids experience trauma? Absolutely. We've had questions about this. We, we had a reader question a while ago. I remember, uh, Robin, you'll remember, right? That poor family that had that horrible trauma when they were hiking, right? And we talked about managing trauma. Yes. So there is a distinction to be made. But when we're talking about handling the day-to-day anxiety or the day-to-day worry of going back to school after the pandemic or children who worry all the time about stepping into new situations... This is where we have to make sure that we're not working to eliminate all of our child's distress. So it's this is a good segue into these three things, because the first thing, right, we want to make sure that they have certainty, they have all the information, we go overboard to make sure they have all the information. The second thing that I see, the bad worry advice, is that they go after the why, right? They have to figure it out. They have to get to the root cause of it. It must be something big. That's oftentimes not the case. 
And the third thing that the advice that I hear given about worry is that we really want to make sure that children are calm and that they don't feel distressed and that we don't put them in situations in which they're going to have big, scary emotions. And we've talked about this a lot. And this is where you hear me talk about using the word safe and safety behaviors and taking kids out of the classroom and bringing them to a safe space, right? So that they don't have these big emotions. Helping kids get used to the distress that you feel as you move through life is the other skill that we want to develop. But those are the three things I see all the time. Give them more information, get to that root cause and find out why, and protect them at all costs from emotional distress. Those are the things I see in articles over and over and over again. There's more, but those are the most popular. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance, so literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. You know when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you? Well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're 
your song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. The emotional distress piece that you talk about, that's very relevant to our recent episodes on the anxiety vaccine because right. it's all about enabling and encouraging your child to handle difficult emotions rather than avoid them. Right. You said a few minutes ago that if we don't let our kids experience unexpected events or step into new things, they can't work that muscle. And it's the same thing with experiencing big emotions, right? If you've never gotten through a heartbreak, how do you know you're going to get through a heartbreak? If you've never gotten through being furious because you didn't get what you want or, or, or having your feelings hurt because somebody treated you badly, you never learn how to process and manage and articulate those emotions. And anxiety is just, you know, we can put that in the list of all of those different things that we have to feel that we have to be able to tolerate. If a child has an anxiety disorder, if they're really, you know, that this is a really chronic pattern, they need those skills. Somebody has to teach them and absolutely has to teach the parents how do you step by step set up situations in which a child can experience uncertainty in a loving and supportive way, right? We don't throw them into the deep end and, and tell them to figure it out. But how do they develop those skills of being able to tolerate uncertainty? Giving kids more information when they are anxious is the absolute opposite of what I do. And yet I hear it all the time, all the time. When we started Fluster Clucks and I was setting up our social media accounts, I made a terrible mistake searching the word anxiety on Pinterest. Oh, Mm-hmm. And that is where I saw all of these pins leading to blog articles on foods to feed your anxious children, supplements and vitamins to give your anxious child, mm. foods to help with anxiety. And now the more the more I've learned from you, I mean that that's also something that I don't know. It's it's sending people down the wrong path, right? It's looking for a quick fix that will do nothing. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's sort of what we do. I'm sure we do it. I'm sure other people do it in other countries. But America is is uh, we're really enthusiastic about the quick fix. Yeah. And, and again, this is when parents are dealing with an anxious child. And remember, the likelihood of one of those parents being anxious themselves is very high. They're looking for something to make their child feel better. They're looking for something to take away the suffering. And so we like the idea that if I just feed them the right food, or if I give them the right noise machine at night, or if I put the right essential oil in the diffuser, or if I on and on. And it's not that those things aren't good things to do. It's not that those things are bad things to do. It's just that you've got to understand 
the process of anxiety and how it works. And then you can use those other things just to add comfort to your life for sure. No one appointed me as a consumer advocate for this, but Mm -hmm. I'm appointing myself. And that's why I wanted to talk about it is because some of the products get very expensive. Yeah. I understand when you're a parent and you're overwhelmed and your child is in need of something. I get it. But again, I, I just wish that there was not so much information out there that is going to prolong real change for a family. I mean, genuinely, I don't waste your money. There are things that make kids feel better, right? So if you have an anxious child, if you have a little anxious child and they like their little stuffy, right? And you buy them a little stuffy, or there are some kids that have a hard time sleeping. And so they get a weighted blanket and that actually calms them and soothes them as they're falling to sleep. All I'm saying is that all of those things are, what would be the word? It's those the frosting, are, not the cake. Yeah. The cake has to be that cognitive behavioral approach. Right. That's what we know works. Now, there are some cognitive things in the cognitive behavioral approach that I actually don't think work all that great, but- Like what? Well, for example, it's sort of the certainty thing, and I may get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't do the thing that a lot of cognitive therapists do, where you have to seek out evidence to support the belief. What does that mean? Okay. So what that means is, say you have a worry that, or say you're anxious about a plane crashing. So one of the things that cognitive therapists might do is have you research the likelihood of the plane crashing, right? So that you know that the odds are really low of that happening. Or say you're really worried about getting bit by a rattlesnake, but you live in a state where there aren't rattlesnakes. They might have you research that to prove that there's really no rational support for that belief. It's not that that's a bad thing to do because sometimes people go, well, well, that, that's great to know. There's no rattlesnakes in New York City. Well, gosh, that's good news. The problem with that is that it gets into the content and there are so many things that I treat with worried kids where I can't dispel them of the fear, right? They're worried about throwing up or they're worried about getting sick or they're worried about somebody in their family dying or they're worried about failing a test or they're worried about people judging them. So. I want people to understand the process of how worry works so they can get some distance from their thinking rather than trying to knock down the content of it in a rational way. That's where I feel like you start playing whack-a-mole. So the reason that I don't do that cognitive process of saying, well, what's the evidence to support that belief is because to me that turns into the same pattern of parents offering that reassurance of, well, that's not going to happen, or I'm never going to die, or I'll always be here for you, or you're not going to throw up or, right, you get into this pattern of reassurance. So I don't even go there. It's funny that you bring that example up because I'm ready for you as my sister-in-law to judge the heck out of me. Okay. (laughs) I have a family story of a conversation. So I'm a child of the 70s and I don't love great white sharks. Oh, yeah. We were looking at destinations where there was a headline that a great white shark pinged near a destination that we frequent. And so then we went to the website to look to see these great white sharks. And of course, both my kids are like, I am not getting in the ocean. <laughs> and frankly, I don't want to get it in the ocean either. Yeah. I had this huge thought bubble up going over my head like, Lynn would say, 
shut the F up. Like, or, like, or then I sort of think like, well, what would Lynn say? And then I didn't really, I didn't really know how do you model like, well, so maybe we do get bitten by a great white <laughs> shark and maybe we don't, you right, know, like there's right, that, right. there's that balance in right. those moments where we talk about scary things. Right. And how as a parent, do we fuel the worry or nurture the right thought patterns to respond? Such a good question. And this is how I would answer it. If we're talking about horrible things happening that could possibly happen. So we know this with OCD treatment, for example, you have intrusive thoughts. So you might have an intrusive thought that you're going to accidentally hit somebody with your car. So you don't say to that person who has that intrusive thought, look, if you hit somebody here with your car, it would be a bummer, but you could handle it right? We don't say, look, if you got eaten by a great white shark, that would totally suck. But you know, I mean, we might pull you out before he eats your second leg. We we don't do that. That's why we want to stay out of the content. So there's, there's a differentiation to be made. If it's a reasonable risk, that's what you want to teach your kids about how do we assess reasonable risk. So if you're going to go to a beach and you look and you see there's a white, great white shark swimming in the area, I think it'd be perfectly fine to say, you know, it's a reasonable decision not to go in the water if we know there's a great white shark. Just like if you were walking down the street and there was a dog tied to a chain that was lunging forward and was like foaming at the mouth and like, ah, it might be a perfectly reasonable decision to cross the street and get away from that scary dog. So here's where the worry comes in. Say now you saw that there was this great white shark swimming and you decided that you weren't going to go swimming at the beach. And so you went back and now you're going to go in the pool. And your son says, I'm not going in the pool. And you say, why not? And they go, because there could be a shark in there. Now you want to say, no, there's not going to be a shark in the pool. And here comes worry in its irrational way, right? So then you get into this debate with the content. Look, sharks live in the ocean. They don't come in pools. Well, what if the shark swum up into the blah, 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 right? I mean, I've had plenty of little kids that are afraid of going into the bathtub because of sharks and no amount of explanation that a shark can't fit through the piping works. So there's reasonable risk and you assess the reasonable risk when needed. Worry doesn't care about reasonable risk because it creates stories in the imagination that then you you can't battle against, right? And so what if mm-hmm. what if we're talking about something that really does happen on a regular basis like throwing up, right? So if a child is terrified of throwing up and we say, you know, "Oh, you won't throw up." They're like, "Well, how do you know?" Right. And the answer is you don't because it could happen. You could just be eating your meatloaf and then a few hours later barfing your brains out. What we want to talk to kids about is how do we tolerate when the worry pops up? Right. Instead of getting into this conversation or this argument with the rational, like, well, that's not going to happen or this or that, we just say, oh, here's your worry popping up. And this is what your worry does. Your worry tells you a story. Your worry wants you to focus on it all the time. Most people are going to throw up during their lives, but we don't have to think about it every waking hour, anticipating the throw up's arrival, which is what worry does. This is making me think about, you know, you've been framing everything around skill building. Mm -hmm. So as you're saying this, it's very interesting to think about training both myself, you know, adults do this as well as children, you know, when the worry shows up, 
how do I respond to these situations? And, and it would probably, because you're all about talking in front of our children and modeling to say, here's the situation that we've read about with the great white shark. We can get some research and we see that the shark pinged several miles off the coast where we wouldn't be playing. So there's mm-hmm. some information that makes this statistically rare so that we're not catastrophizing. The difference between if you're dealing with somebody who's really anxious, if you're dealing with somebody who's a real worrier, oftentimes information doesn't matter. That's one of the ways to sort of recognize it. No amount of information takes away all the risk. You know, you and I, when we get on airplanes, we know that the likelihood of the plane crashing is very, very small, but we also know that it's not zero. So we accept that reasonable risk. When we get into a car, we accept the reasonable risk. I was just reading a, a really great article about risk assessment and what, what's happening with the vaccines and how people are thinking about risk during COVID. How we assess risk is, is really what makes you a worrier or not a worrier because we cannot have certainty. That's the bottom line. And so whenever, you know, if we're talking about bad advice, the bad advice I see all the time really falls into that category of let's create certainty. Let's give our children the impression that there is a 0% chance that this will happen in order for them to move forward. But it doesn't mean that we don't give any information, right? So the story I often tell is a little boy who was afraid of vampires under his bed. And his dad had told him a gazillion times there's no such thing as vampires, but was still putting garlic around the bed at night. Giving information and giving reassurance and making sure that the child has all the information possible is just not going to work because the skill we're building is, like you say, how do we know how to assess reasonable risk and how do we know when our worry is just popping up and creating all this noise in our head? When I'm looking at articles and when I'm looking at experts or when I'm looking at advice these days about how to help your child with worry, very, very rarely do I see these articles say what we're trying to do is build the skill of tolerating uncertainty. I see it every once in a while and I know the people who write about that. But just in the run of the mill blogs and the parenting advice and all that kind of stuff, I don't see that at all. I don't. But that's the skill we're looking for. How do we how do we know the difference between yeah, I got to assess some reasonable risk here and or this is worry telling me a story and worry is putting that demand forth, right? Unless I know it's not going to happen, unless you can convince me it's not going to happen, I'm not going in the pool, I'm not going in the bathtub, I'm not going in the ocean. I had a little boy a long time ago, cute little muffin. And he wouldn't go into the ocean because he was afraid of dead things. And so his mom would say to him, there aren't dead things in the ocean. And he would say, oh, yeah? <laughs> and, and there were dead things in the ocean. There's dead fish. There's dead starfish. There's probably dead people every once in a while. Um, but, but he wouldn't go into the ocean. <laughs> How do you deal with that worry? Now, this kid had a lot of worries. And so we can't say to him, there's not dead things in the ocean, or you won't see a dead thing in the ocean. You talk to him, you say, the world is full of dead things, right? There are dead bugs in the grass, there are dead mice, and there are dead this, and there are dead that, right? How do we tolerate living in a world where there are things that are alive and things that are dead? 
Yeah. Eventually he'll say, I don't want to go to the grocery store either. Right. There are dead things there too. Absolutely. Well, what did happen when, what is that uh, there was a, a dead mouse uh, in their garage. And the husband just yelled to the to the wife, just yelled, hey, uh, there's a dead mouse in here. He wouldn't go in the garage. They got rid of the dead mouse, but now he wasn't going in the garage. There's dead things in the garage. So it just becomes this cascade of sort of how do I, how do I eliminate things? How do I get rid of things? I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, Think Like a Boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So 
every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. When you have a child that is escalating the content like that, Mm -hmm. how do you suggest the parents put a stop to the pattern? We get out of the content as quick as we can. So you don't talk about the content. So that's when we talk about the worry. So we give the worry a name and we say, oh boy, your worry has come up with a good one. Right. And I say, your worry doesn't think you can handle anything. And I say, I say, say we're talking to this little boy, right? He's not a little boy anymore, actually. I ran into his mom a few years ago at a presentation. She came up to me. He's graduated college. So we, we worked on it. Let's just say he named his worry Fred. Oh boy. Fred just takes over, doesn't it? And Fred tells you what you can and can't do. Fred doesn't think you can handle anything. Now, I don't want to see a dead mouse in the garage. But if I saw it, I'd probably be a little grossed out and then I'd have to handle it. And But, but your Fred, your, your worry doesn't think that you can handle it, right? That's the message your worry gives you all the time. You can't handle it. And what parents unfortunately mistake for helping a child with their worry and teaching their child to manage their worry is that helping their child with their worry becomes we have to eliminate the things that cause him distress. So we're going to either tell him there's no dead things in the garage or there's no dead things in the ocean. We're going to sort of go in front of him, you know, literally and figuratively and make sure that we get rid of all those things. That's bad advice. That's bad advice. We're talking about this because if you've got a worrier in your family, you or your kids, you've got to, we're glad you're here, but you have to also be wary that there is in fact a lot of advice that's going to slow down change. Yes. There's absolutely a lot of advice that's going to slow down change because there's a lot of advice that is based on elimination and based on creating certainty. There's a lot of advice that is really, if I may be so bold as to say, is really just like these placebo band-aids that you're sort of trying to patch together. And it's sort of like when I see all these ads for, you've seen these ads, right? So it's this person is just eating a big pizza, like, oh, I just ate seven tacos. And so now they have to take their medication for their tummy ache. And I always think, don't eat the pizza, you idiot, right? Like it's just so, and that's how I, <laughs> that's how I, that's how I think of a lot of times as the advice I see for anxiety. Yeah. It's the acid reducing medicine so that the man can enter the all you can eat barbecue chicken wing uh, contest. Yeah. Right. Don't exactly. enter the barbecue <laughs> don't, chicken don't, wing all yeah, you can eat contest. Yeah, yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I think, and, I, and again, I'm not, I don't want to come across as a harsh or blaming about this because I absolutely understand that parents are desperate to have their kids feel better. And placebos do work, by the way. Just use a placebo that works in the right direction. But it's making sure that you're not doing things or spending your money on things and buying all these things that are going to just be band-aids, right? So don't buy the acid reflex medication if you're going to keep eating the pizza. Learn about how worry works and learn how to talk to your child about that. Learn how to have those discussions about it. 
so that they become knowledgeable about themselves, about their own thinking, about their own responding, rather than continuing to put these band-aids on it. Those things that we're talking about, these products that people buy and the supplements and all that kind of stuff, what we refer to those in the anxiety biz is safety crutches. A lot of them become safety crutches. So now you can't leave the house unless you have your you know, lavender oil diffuser with you. You can't leave the house unless you have your, and then you become dependent upon those things. And they just serve as placebos, but they're called safety crutches. Well, a desperate parent who feels so overwhelmed by running their household, taking Mm -hmm. care of the kids, performing in their job, is going to look for any shortcut. We all love shortcuts. So the instinct is natural. That's the whole thing about, that's interesting about anxiety is that, The things we do, those instincts, unfortunately, with the treatment of worry and anxiety, they make it worse. And so a lot of what I am teaching parents to do and a lot of what parents have to learn how to do is counterintuitive. And so, of course, you're going to reach for those things that that make it better in the short term. They just make it worse in the long term. Wasn't that the episode on Seinfeld where George Costanza finally had a successful love life because he learned to do the opposite of what his instincts (laughs) dictated? Yeah. Well, I think that's how he got like that position in the New York Yankees too, right? So he just, he just started doing the exact opposite of what he thought he should do and everything started going, going great for him. Yeah. Speaking of that, did, um, I, we had a, talk about this in the Facebook group for Fluster Clucks, but did you see this? So we have been watching Friends with um, our kids. Friends is apparently like, you know, your your sons are older, but like if you're in middle school. Oh yeah, it's all the rage. It's it's all about Friends. We actually have a Friends Lego set of Central Perk <laughs> that my kids <laughs> just did together. But so we had this conversation uh, the other night. It was really kind of interesting my your brother my husband brought it up and was like what do you think each of the characters what skill do each of the characters need to learn if you think of these six characters and then my son was like I think Ross really needs to learn emotional management So, so we, so I was like, oh, okay. So we started talking about it, and and it was, but that's so interesting. I'm telling you, the episodes and the information you put out in the anxiety vaccine episodes at the beginning of the year were game changers for us because we're all in of trying to raise emotionally intelligent kids, and the idea of discussing. Mm -hmm. emotions in a way like just taking everything to a whole new level yeah and it becomes a really fun conversation right my kids definitely figured out the monica character oh Oh, monica oh rigidity rigidity. competitiveness and then um and then they were like chandler needs to work on his communication because he (laughs) uses humor as a defensive mechanism (laughs) he has a hard time being vulnerable Chandra has a hard time being vulnerable. And then with Joey, um, I was like, well, Joey's actually pretty solid. And then, and then, and then it was like, no, Joey, Joey's too much of a pleasure seeker and isn't about building emotional relationships with, (laughs) you know, the opposite sex, right? Like, cause he's like a pleasure seeker. Yeah. So it, it was actually a really great conversation. And it made me think there's like no limit to 
how to bring this in as a family yeah. discussion. And uh, it was super fun. You're just giving me such a great idea about thinking that too, because one of the things that I'm, I'm talking to schools so much now about social and emotional learning, and there's a lot of talk, which we can do a whole nother episode on sort of the reaction to reentry and what I'm hearing out there in the world. I keep saying to schools, as I say to parents all the time, just work this in right? Just work it in. So wouldn't it be great if you were having some class and the, the teacher just like, well, let's talk about who's watching Friends. Let's talk about the emo- the skills that each of the Friends characters need to learn. You know, you, you could do it if, if we were talking to people my age, we'd say, let's think about MASH. You know, like one of my mentors always uses these MASH references, which MASH was had tons of stuff in it. So it's such a good idea as we're just using the culture in this way. You know, I just I just love that, Robin. I love that I love that you guys are having those conversations. What about Phoebe? Phoebe was interesting. The The verdict on the Phoebe character was that she could be a little, but yeah. someone said, I can't remember who said it, but that she she could be a little self-centered and she's kind of an all or nothing thinker. Oh, you want me to tell you how I think about Phoebe? Phoebe yeah. gave me the best line ever that I use all the time for setting boundaries where she said, I really wish I could help you, but I don't want to. Oh, <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. The only problem is there's a lot of seasons of Friends, but I said to my kids, I was like, guys, we are like living in a communist country and there is only one channel and it just shows Friends 24-7. <laughs> so like there is a limit to how many episodes of that show you can watch. I got a lot of tweener girls in my practice that are totally watching Friends all the time and I'm going to start asking them that question. I think of 1994 to 2021 is kind of one decade. Same with me. No one ever says the odds. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Flusterclux. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.